Scripture reading as we come to God's Word this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 4. I believe that's on page 1183 in your pew Bibles where we'll read the last 14 verses in our ninth and last sermon through Paul's second letter to Timothy where we find these last words of a dying apostle, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Um, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books. And above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be aware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus uh, remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you. As Deputans and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This far the reading of God's word. Beloved, as you know, um, last words, they tell us a lot about what a person values as they uh, speak from the heart about what is near and dear to them. And as they they look back and and reflect on the life that they've lived, that's what last words do. They tell us what a person values, and they let us in on that person reflecting on the life that they've lived. And so as we we listen in on these last recorded words of the Apostle Paul, we're, we're given here a little window into the things, uh, not only that he values most, but the things that he has valued over a lifetime of ministry, some three decades. And so as he reflects, we, we see not only what should be near and dear to us in our dying days, but also throughout our life. We see in these verses Paul's commitment to the people of God. We see Paul's commitment to the word of God. We see Paul's commitment to the mission of God, the 
apostle who so loves the gospel of our Lord Jesus, therefore loves his people who were bought with Christ's own blood, loves his word because it speaks to him of Christ, and loves his mission because that mission is all about the one who gave his life for him. Here in these last verses of 2 Timothy 4, we see what a gospel-oriented life and death look like. It looks like a commitment to the people of God, commitment to the word of God, and commitment to the mission of God. As we reflect on these verses, may God so work these same commitments in us. Let's think first about Paul's commitment to the people of God, what we can learn from this about the place of the church in the life and death of the believer. You notice what Paul says in verse 9 as he, as he comes now to the, the concluding section of his letter. He, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. This is maybe a little bit surprising for us. We might think the great Apostle Paul, so heavenly-minded, the great Apostle Paul, who, who says in verse 17 that even when no one else stood by him, Christ did, that, that he wouldn't need such fellowship. But at the end of his life, he, he says, no, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. And then again in verse 21, at both the beginning and end of this section, do your best, Timothy, to come before winter. He longs to see his son in the faith. The one of whom he said back in chapter 1, verse 4, As I remember your tears, Timothy, I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. The great apostle here teaches us something about the importance of Christian fellowship. That being made in the image of the triune God, we are made for fellowship. It is not good for men to be alone. And marriage is not the only place where God meets our need for fellowship, but he does so through the church, through his people. Who Paul shows his love for and commitment to not only in verse 9 and verse 21 and his longing for Timothy, but also in, in verse 10 and 11 and 12 where he speaks of, of those who have left him and, and how much that pains him. He so values the, the fellowship with God's people that it pains him that, that Crescens has had to go along to, to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. He, he so values these partnerships in the gospel that it hurts him not to be with these men. And then it pains him also to think of those who have left him not for good reasons, but have forsaken him. As he speaks in verse 10 of Demas who deserted him and went to Thessalonica. And it's interesting, this is the same Demas that he mentions in Colossians chapter 4 at the very end as he's giving his greetings. Demas, who was, was with Paul and sent his greetings to the saints in Colossae, the, the same thing at the end of Philemon. This partner in the gospel who has now deserted him. In love, Paul says, with the present age. Remember, we mentioned this last week where Paul referred in uh, 4 verse 8 to Christians as, as those who love Christ's appearing. Those who don't love this age but long for Christ's coming. But here, Paul's former partner in the ministry has forsaken him in love, not with Christ's coming, but with the present age. I'm to use the, the language of Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Demas didn't make it through Vanity Fair. He didn't keep his eyes fixed on that celestial city. And, and you can imagine Paul writing this with tears in his eyes as it pains him. 
We see his love for the visible church and the pain that it causes him when friends like Demas depart. In both Paul's longing for Timothy and the way that he misses um, uh, Crescens and and Titus and the way that that he laments the departure of of Demas, we see his love for the church. Even in verse 11 where he, he mentions Mark. Remember, Mark was the one whose withdrawal from the mission back in Acts chapter 15 had caused Paul such frustration. It was actually what led to Barnabas and Paul parting ways. But now, Paul longs to see Mark and and says that he's useful to him. You see, his love for the people of God includes a, a forbearing spirit where even those who had once failed him, he longs to see. Written all over this passage is a love for the people of God bought with Christ's own blood. And then again in verses 19 through 21, greet Prisca and Aquila, the household of Onesiphorus. Remember, Onesiphorus was the one who back in, in uh, chapter 1 had, had uh, so often visited Paul and refreshed him. He mentions Erastus and Trophimus and sends greetings from Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. All the brothers in Rome who, by the way, in verse 16, had not come to stand with Paul at his first trial. But nevertheless, he doesn't hold it against them, but even sends greetings in their name. This is a man who loves the people of God and and has the necessary forbearance that it takes to do so. At the very end of his life, we see the great apostle living out his ecclesiology, his, his doctrine of the church by longing to be with God's people, by weeping over those who have left. And even in verse 12, by, by thinking of the church's well-being in sending Tychicus to Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus is where Timothy is, is pastoring, and, and so Calvin suggests that, that this is maybe as a sort of replacement for Timothy as he comes to see Paul. Even as he brings Timothy to see him in his dying days, he is thinking of the brothers and sisters in Ephesus and making provisions for them. By the way, even him bringing Timothy to see him is not a selfish thing. But in addition to being necessary for Paul's own soul, remember, this is his protege who he's he's passing the baton on to. And so it's crucial that, that Paul see Timothy so that he might pass on the needed counsel for this young pastor that can only be given through face-to-face ministry. In calling Timothy to him, he is blessing the church. And Calvin said, undoubtedly, there, there must have been no trivial reason why he called Timothy away from the church over which he presided We can infer from this how highly important are such meetings or conferences between such persons, where Timothy would learn in a short space of time what would be profitable for a long period for all the churches, even including us. Paul is thinking of the people of God. He loves them and longs to see them and longs to bless them through his ministry to Timothy and Timothy is to him. We, we see in, in these verses the kind of commitment to the people of God that belongs to one who, who understands the doctrine of the church, who understands the corporate implications of the gospel that Christ has purchased us not only for himself but as a part of his body. And so those who love him, therefore, love his bride. 
even in Paul's dying days, he does not drift into isolation, but presses in more to the people of God. We see that in the opening verses of this section. We see that in in the last verses of this section. We see in the section between that that this is not just because of some vague desire for, for some vaguely defined community. Paul's not just looking for, for a buddy to be with, but, but that this is birthed out of, of Paul's love for Christ and, and the shared communion that he and God's people have together in him. And we see this from, from his commitment all throughout this passage, not just to the people of God, but to the word of God, the word of Christ, which, which their communion is centered around. The God-breathed word that Paul has mentioned in every chapter of this book. We see Paul's commitment to that word in verse 13. He says, Timothy, when you come, I want you to bring my cloak, but also the books, and above all, bring the parchments. This is a favorite uh, proof text for seminarians and pastors on the importance of, of good books. Um, Calvin said it, it gives to all believers a recommendation of constant reading that they may profit by it, and it refutes the madness of those who despising books and condemning all reading boast in nothing but their own thoughts. It's a wonderful proof text for a good theological reading, for for reading widely, for using the church library. But beyond that, it's it's a wonderful advertisement, not just for books in general, but for the importance of the book. For notice what Paul says at the end of the verse, and above all the parchments. That, that phrase above all means, means especially or in particular as opposed to the general. It means the, the preeminent or exceptionally distinguished thing that I wish to draw your attention to above all the other books. I want you to bring the parchments. The animal skin vellum codices that are almost assuredly a reference to some portion of the scriptures. Quote one uh, pastor, Nathan Ashman, the parchments are the scriptures, that which is, is written on more lasting material, that which is set apart from the mere scrolls, the very word of God, which must be known above all things by the servant of God. The same word that he's just mentioned at the end of chapter 3 that is breathed out by God and sufficient for all things, both in life and in doctrine. It is Paul's very lifeline. At the end of his life, this is what he wants above all else, the word, which is able to equip you for every good work and make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ, who is the center and subject of that word. He loves the word. Because he loves Christ, he loves to hear his voice. He loves to study the scriptures. He wants the parchments. We see his his love of the word further in verses 14 and 15, where Paul tells Timothy to watch out for Alexander the coppersmith, who we might see in coming to Rome or or perhaps in stopping to Troas to get the cloak. Paul says, He did me great harm, for he strongly opposed our message. This, by the way, is like the same Alexander of 1 Timothy 1 verse 20 who had abandoned the faith. And now, as is often the case with with deconstructed apostates, he has a particular zeal to undermine the gospel. 
And so Paul calls down an imprecation or a curse upon him. It says, the Lord repay him according to his deeds. This, we can be sure, is not born out of a, a vengeful and vindictive spirit where, where Paul is simply upset for how he was wrong. For in verse 11, he's able to forgive Mark. And in verse 16, he's able to say to those who, who didn't uh, stand by him at, at his trial, he's able to say, God, don't hold it against them. Like David in the Old Testament, Paul is a man of a particularly forbearing spirit. And so we know that this prayer for judgment isn't born out of a a hate-filled vengeance or out of some egotistical self-obsession, but as with David in the Old Testament, it's born of a zeal for God's kingdom. Like when David says in Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. And then just a little while later in that same psalm is a prayer for the judgment of those who oppose the messianic king. So in Paul's case with Alexander, he is opposing the king. Remember, we we just saw last week how Paul, in in preaching the word, is a herald of the king who, who brings the king's message. And so by Alexander strongly opposing the king's message, especially as one who once believed that message, he is opposing the Christ. And Paul says, insofar as that hostile stance toward the king continues, insofar as that hostile stance toward the word continues, may he be judged. It is his love for the word and his love for the gospel that leads him to pray this. Like the psalmist in Psalm 119, who so delights in God's word, he's able to say, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your word. I hate the double-minded, but love your law. That's what we see in verses 14 and 15, spilling out of, of Paul's Psalm 119 delight in God's word that we saw at the end of chapter 3. At the beginning of chapter 4, as he charged Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. Devote yourself to the scriptures. Paul loves the word, and even this this prayer for judgment of those who strongly oppose the message of the king, we see not his zeal for his, his own self and his own mission, but his love for the word. I would suggest we see his his love for God's word also in verse 17 where Paul speaks of being rescued from the lion's mouth. As I think this imagery reflects Paul's deep meditation on the psalm that we just sang right before the sermon. Psalm 22. Where the spirit of Christ in David says, save me from the lion's mouth in verse 21. And then the very next line, you have rescued me. Paul is echoing what Christ said in Psalm 22. Likewise, in verse 16, he speaks of being deserted and abandoned and alone in the same way that Psalm 22 does. In verse 17, Paul speaks of his desire in the midst of his suffering that all the Gentiles might hear the gospel. So Christ, in Psalm 22, said, All the ends of the earth will hear and remember and turn to the Lord. In verse 18, where where Paul speaks of being brought into God's heavenly kingdom, echoes the very next verse in Psalm 22, where kingship belongs to God. It's interesting, at the very very end of 
of Psalm 22, and notice this just as we were singing, also speaks of those who, who were going down to the dust, trusting in God and worshiping him. That is precisely what is pictured in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a man with a death sentence hanging over him, going down to the dust and yet trusting and worshiping the Lord. All of these parallels between these two passages leads to to the suggestion by many that as Paul is facing his death, he's been meditating on Psalm 22. The same psalm that occupied Christ at his death. As Christ's suffering now overflows to his servant. Both in Psalm 22 and and here in Paul's last words, we, we see desertion. Deliverance, salvation, we see the Lord's nearness, we see references to lion's mouths and God's kingdom. All of this suggesting that Paul was greatly influenced and encouraged by this psalm. That the word of Christ had been dwelling in him richly and like the man of Psalm 1, he'd been meditating on it day and night so that in his moment of trial, it was the psalms that came up out of him. And even before the parchments had been delivered. Richard Phillips says, Christians who make it their practice to stroll frequently through the garden of the Psalms, who make a practice of of singing the Psalms and, and committing them to memory, will be well repaid in their hour of darkness, doubt, and despair with words fitted just for their troubled situation to take their faltering faith by the hand and lead it once again to God. That's what we see here in Paul's use of Psalm 22. He is a man who is committed to God's word and it well repays him in his final hours. I can say thinking of of some of our our senior members in the past or um, even now with with Anna Hassels, how how often they, they comment on what a wonderful gift it is at the end of your life to have had the Psalms hidden in your heart from your youth. If I may may say this politely, they will do you far more good than Hillsong in the valley of the shadow of death. Learn to love the Psalms. Like Paul, be committed to the word of Christ. In his words here, we we see his commitment to the people of God. We see his commitment to the word of God, the gospel that is the central theme of that word. And then uh, finally, we, we see... But a commitment to the word and gospel of God leads to a commitment to the mission of God and having that gospel word proclaimed to the ends of the earth. That's what we see in verses 16 to 18. Paul's commitment to the mission of God, this same mission that he would have been reflecting on at the end of Psalm 22 of the good news of the once forsaken but now delivered Davidic king going forth to the ends of the earth so that all the ends of the earth and the families of the nations might turn to the Lord and worship him. That's what Paul's been reflecting on. So that's what we see spilling out of him again in these last verses. Look at verses 16 and 17 and his, his commitment to suffer for the cause of the gospel. He says, though no one came to stand by him at his first defense, this is speaking of his trial in Rome, Though not a single person came to stand by him, he was strengthened by the grace of God to fully proclaim the message of salvation that all the Gentiles might hear it. 
His passion for the gospel led him to suffer for the gospel, and even in that moment, his, his life in danger, not to love his life in the face of death, but to witness to the gospel of the one who suffered alone like him and for him, that those who hear it might be saved. Paul's overarching concern, both in life and in death, is the mission of God in the gospel. Remember when Christ converted him in Acts chapter 9 of the road to Damascus, he told him, Paul, I will show you the things that you must suffer for my name. Does it make you my apostle to the Gentiles? And here we see him committed to that mission, his life on the line. He is not thinking of himself, but he's thinking of others. We, we might try to imagine in our minds what this would have looked like. Remember, Paul, is, he's on trial for preaching the gospel Quite likely in a very, very public forum to which many in the public would have had access in the greatest city in the world. And before that audience, it says that he preached the message that all the Gentiles might hear it. This, we could say in many ways, is the great fulfillment and climax of his ministry. That message that he speaks of, that he proclaimed, that message is the same good deposit that he's been speaking of ever since chapter 1. The good news that God saved us, not because of our own works, but because of his grace in Christ, purposed before the ages began, fulfilled by by Christ coming to, to live, die, and rise for us, that by faith in him we might be saved. That's the message Paul proclaimed, look unto Christ and live. He who knew no sin yet became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul was strengthened to proclaim that message. He wanted all the Gentiles to hear it. To his dying day, that was his life's passion. And he could preach it knowing he might die because of what he says in verse 18. That God will rescue him from every evil deed. Will bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul knows and is convinced that the worst possible thing that could happen to him will be for him the best thing because Christ has abolished death. And as he said in 1 verse 1, the gospel is the promise of life. Those who die with him, therefore, will live with him. You see, Paul truly believes the things that he's been telling Timothy throughout this book and so is willing to die preaching the gospel. Strengthened, verse 17, but the Lord who stood by him, even as he told Timothy in 2, verse 1, to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The same grace he preaches is provided in the person he proclaims, Christ. He's committed to the people of God, committed to the word of God, and committed to to the mission of God, which leads him not to be self-focused at the end of his life, but even when he stood alone like Christ, he was thinking of those to whom he preached and even of those who did not stand by him. As he says in verse 16, may it not be charged against them. Like Christ, he prays, Father, forgive them. But Christ, too, knew what it was to be alone in his hour of greatest need. His disciples fell asleep when he needed them most. You see, something of that echoed here. But 
as we see with Christ and with Paul, his, his mission focus led him not to be self-focused and, and keep score of their wrongs, but to be self-forgetting and forgive. And this, I, I would suggest, is, is what a focus on the mission of God does. It reorients us away from self and towards others for God's glory. His word-centered People of God focused, mission oriented life led him not to be self focused in death, but to be thinking of God's people and God's mission. Paul in these verses shows us how to live and die well. Committed to the word of God and the people of God, risking his life for the mission of God, confident of heavenly glory. That God will rescue him from every evil deed, even through death, as he did with Christ, and will bring him safely into that celestial city. To him be the glory forever and ever. Love, this is what a Christ-centered, gospel-saturated, word-focused life and death looks like. It leads us to meditate on the word that equips us for every good work, to desire that word to be furthered for the good of God's people and the advance of his kingdom, and even to be willing to give our life for that cause, confident he will keep us until that day and he receives us into his heavenly kingdom. The privilege this last week of taking a class, uh, the history of the, the Scottish Reformation that dealt quite a bit with of the martyrs of the, the 17th century, and I think these words of Scottish martyr Hugh McHale uh, well summarize what, what God, through Paul's witness here, is, is seeking to work in us. McHale said as he was dying for his faith, he said, Now I leave off to speak any more with created beings and to begin my communion with God, which shall never be broken. A farewell, father and mother, Friends and relations, farewell the world and all delights, farewell meat and drink, farewell sun, moon, and stars. Welcome, God and Father. Welcome, sweet Lord Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Welcome, blessed spirit of grace, God of all consolation. Welcome, glory. Welcome, eternal life. Welcome, death. That's what Mikhail, like Paul, was able to say at the end of his life because of what he valued throughout his life. And God graciously gives us pictures like this in, in church history and in pictures of like, like this of, of Paul in 2 Timothy 4 that we might live and die well too. That the Spirit of Christ in him and, and in us might conform us to this same kind of life and death. Verse 18, for God's glory, and verse 22, equipped by God's grace. What does it look like to fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith? It looks like this kind of commitment to God's word, God's people, and God's mission. The good news that Christ has abolished death and in him is the promise of life. That good news going forth to all nations that all who repent of their sin and believe on him will be saved. So trust that in life And trust that in death, confident he will bring you in to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel that is the promise of life. 
It is proclaimed to us in every page of the scriptures that unites us to your people and gives us confidence even in the face of death that you will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom, which therefore frees us in life and in death to have a singular focus on the advance of that gospel in our hearts, in our homes, and to the ends of the earth that all the Gentiles might hear. Lord, as we have spent these couple of months looking at Paul's last will and testament, we pray that you would use it to stir in us a love for your word, a love for your gospel, and for its advance, that both in life and in death, we would be committed to these things with the grace of your spirit, for your glory, forever and ever.